Hello and welcome to Uncorrect New York, episode 27. I'm Tom Rosati. I'm Stephen Witt. And in the studio today, we have a special guest, Michael Lambert, who is the former executive director of the Bed-Stuy Gateway Bid. Hey, good morning. Great to be here. And uh, yeah, we are yeah. going to talk about a couple different things. Mike, you're a longtime Queens resident, is that correct? Correct, over 50 years now. All right. You, you, you know, we brought you on because I go back with you from my days when I was a reporter at Our Time Press. And I remember, you know, you were kind of a, a big shot there in Bed-Stuy as the <laughs> executive director of the bid. And then, I, you know, I've come to find out you've got quite a backstory. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it? I mean, you're originally from Jamaica, Jamaica, Jamaica. Yes, yeah, so I, you know, I have a very diverse background. Originally born in um, Mona Heights, a suburb of Kingston on the small Caribbean isle of Jamaica in the West Indies. I came here when I was three. Uh, when I came here, I have four siblings, myself, my siblings, my grandmother, my parents. We actually lived in a small apartment at 1070 East New York Avenue, right across the street from Lincoln Terrace Park. Uh, one night, someone actually, a straight bullet came through our living window, and my father was like, okay, maybe it's time to go and look for someplace else to live. And he actually found a house for us now uh, in Southeast Queens, which is basically the house that I live in now where I'm raising my sons. Uh, and my family, and um, yeah, that's pretty much my backstory in terms of like how I got here. And then you, where'd you go to school? So I went to, uh, I forget the public school in Brooklyn, I went there for like a hot minute. I did Head Start on Merrick Boulevard in, out in Queens. I went to PS 147, which is in Cambria Heights. Uh, it's now the Ronald McNair School out there. I went to junior high school 192, where I actually also went with a uh, rest in peace, very good friend, Jason Mizell. We played stickball together before class. Um, He's run DMC, the Jason? Correct, oh, yeah. 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 Uh, and then high school, I went to the Bronx High School of Science. So, yeah. Really? And, uh, and you passed the test, obviously, to go to the Bronx I High took School. A <laughs> standard, what they're calling now the Shazat, or I know there's like a name for it now. Back then, it was just like the specialized high school entrance exam. And, and what do you think of this whole controversy to ban the exam? I think it's a bad move. I think that basically people are trying to change the system that actually was designed in certain ways to really kind of like focus in on why people would want to go to a specific school. Like when I went to Bronx Science, because I wanted to be an engineer, I come from a family back in Jamaica where a lot of my cousins are engineers and we have educators. My mother was a nurse. So I didn't want to be an educator. I didn't want to be a nurse. Engineering was a natural path for me. And my father just came to me one day and said, hey, you know, you're going to fill out this application. You're going to take this test. You're going to go to one of these schools. You know, Jamaican parent, Jamaican household, you do what your parents say, and that's about it. Took the test. I was actually the only person in my junior high school who got into Bronx Science. I think there was one other person who got into Stuyvesant and about maybe five who got into tech at the time. Uh, and again, it wasn't because the schools were being deemed elite. These were just specialized high schools, and Bronx Science obviously specialized in science. And the majority of uh, the students who I went there with had an interest in math and science, and that's why we actually made the concerted effort to get there. I think that what's lacking, uh, and I know you've had some guests on here who've talked about this before, which I agree with a lot of their points, is that the preparation to sit for the exam is woefully lacking in a lot of ways. Uh, my middle sister at the time was pre-med at Cornell. And before I sat for the exam, she actually, while my friends were outside playing, she sat with me in the kitchen room table going through like the Barron's Review books and uh, all the study prep and... I think the most stark thing for me was a lot of the material that she actually taught me at that point was the first time I'd seen it. Mm, right. So I think that if that's the material that's on the exam and I'm seeing it for the first time when my sister 
you know, is teaching it to me, then good luck trying to actually pass the exam if that curriculum is not incorporated from, like, the much earlier grades. Because this this doesn't start when you sit for the exam. This starts when you start to get educated. Right. I mean, you know, in in Chinese neighborhoods, you have these preps where the kids start prepping for – just the general idea of standardized tests when they're like six years old. Correct. I used to, I worked very briefly at a Korean after school in Los Angeles, and they had me doing test prep for these six year olds. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, these kids are smart. They should be doing something else. Like, there's a lot of different ways you learn how to read, not just answering. I mean, whatever. There's different philo- philosophical takes on it, but yeah, like they they prep from a very early age. I mean, the the problem is in terms of you know what what we're, we're realizing now is that in you know the new economy like all the new jobs are tech based yeah i mean, I mean so the, yeah it, the it, world's changing yeah so it goes from you know say when you or i went to high school and it's a choice i want to go into engineering i don't go to math you know I, i'm really interested in math i didn't want to go to stuyvesant because i wasn't interested in math and science so uh now you know the, the really the way out is is through i mean definitively through math and science so then it becomes this question of it comes a question about access a lot more than it did when we were we were younger, you know. Yeah, and I think that's a factor of the fact the world is changing. Yeah. You know, when we were growing up, there was no Amazon. You couldn't get packages delivered to your doorstep. But like right now in my house, I used to do the grocery shopping. Now right. my wife actually has her groceries delivered to the doorstep. Right. You know, we have a ring doorbell, so you know we can actually like see who's dropping off what any time of the day. Right. These things didn't exist. But you yeah. see what I'm saying though? It's like a bigger. It is a bigger issue, and I generally agree that. You know, I think if you have a math and science school, if you don't have a test that tests kids' ability to f- perform in that school, then they're just and then you let them in, they're just going to fail. Oh yeah, they're not the the chances that they're not going to do well yeah. are greater. Yeah, and I think that that's probably where in some of this like danger lies. The other thing I say is, if you're going to take off the seven percent of the best of all the schools across the city, what are you leaving in the other schools that you've taken those seven percent from? Right. You know what I mean? It's like what happens then? It's like if the teachers now are having trouble getting everyone to perform at that level of the same 7% you're going to remove, what, what are you doing when you take them away? Who you've left behind? What are right. the, how are you going to improve the instruction? It's almost like, to me, you're going to make that 93% in all those cases maybe even worse off. Right. And I yeah. think those are – and these, again – Yeah, because know, those kids will be positive influences in that school, whereas they're just going to be removed. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's just – I mean, we, we've talked about this before, but, you know, the more you think about it, it's like it is a lightning rod – like. The whole issue is a lightning rod for just education equity, right? Like the Correct. idea that, like, you know, if you grew up in one neighborhood, you're not going to have a better, you know, you you have a less chance of learning the skills that you need to 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 make it in today's economy than if you lived, you know, five miles down the road from a different school. And that is something that we need to really address. I just want to move it on. I mean, I'm yeah. glad we talked about it, but we got a lot to talk I'm about. I'm very proud too. of my Bronx science background. <laughs> well, that's cool. How many, how, just real quick, were you like the only uh, black guy in there? Was there a lot? Was no, no, no. So we had uh, BOSS, the Black Organization for Student Strength at the time. BOSS had it probably had... Uh, over 100 members, and it wasn't even – I was no, even a formal member of BOSS. Uh, hmm. But, you know, we had uh, a, a lot more than a dozen. Well, how did it slip? And, and then I want to go on to something else here. I talked about it again. And so I think that to what Tom mentioned is that you do have some families that realize the value of basically trying to excel to get into one of these schools to advance your future chances. And some people, I think, have just made more of an effort in that regard – to put resources in there regardless of what they're getting from their public school system. 
You know, a lot of the alumni I know who are like, uh, you know, black and brown, there are a lot of like close Facebook groups and things like that. We have these conversations and I haven't met the person yet who's faulting any of the agents for actually stepping up and trying harder. I mean, that's how a lot of us even got here ourselves, you know? Well, and the other thing I think we mentioned a long time ago is that, you know, right now, because, you know, all these independent schools realize, hey, we need a diverse population. Like, if you're a smart black kid who comes out of a public school and has good scores, like, you're going to get picked up by Prep for Prep or um, or Teak or one of these programs, and you're going to get a free ride to, like, Dalton. So it's like, all right, what am I going to do? Go to Stuyvesant or go to Dalton for free? Correct. And so you get, you know, all these kids now are getting, or go, or they get, they get, uh, they get scholarships to boarding schools too. So you know, you're taking the cream of the crop of of minority students and you're giving them. Steve. Oh boy, I thought I had turned mine off. I'm sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't be an incorrect podcast if Steve's phone didn't ring. Although mine <laughs> rang last time. Mm. Um, but so yeah, you're taking the cream of the crop and you're, you know, you're. You're giving them an amazing education, but then you're taking that off. The people that would have gone, you know, 20 years ago would have gone to Stuyvesant, would have gone to Brooklyn Tech. Correct. Gone, you know, so. All right. So it's just not a drop. It's a different. It's a shift. You know, it's not saying, okay, well, these students don't exist anymore. No, they do. They're actually getting better opportunities, and so they're taking them. But, but one last point. I think that the students who are actually are not in the top, they're, they're capable students. They just need the tools, the resources, and the support to elevate them. That's it. Gotcha. So just, and then you got, where'd you go to college? I went to, wow, I guess when I graduated, it was the Polytechnic University, formerly the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn, which is not too far from right. here, on J Street. And I think it's now uh, the Tandon School of Engineering at NYU. Correct. And then how'd you, and how'd you get from there to business and, and uh, to be the, the head of the bid at, at uh, Bed-Stuy there? By a very crooked path. So it's funny. I was listening to your prior podcast with um, public advocate Giovanni Williams, and I heard about, like, you know, how long it took everyone to get out of school. I <laughs> fall into that same bucket. So when I graduated from Bronx Science, I wanted to take a year off. And again, Jamaican father, no, you're going to no. go straight to school. This is what you're going to do. Uh, I went to, like, work for half a year and use the money I earned working to travel for half a year and then, like, you know, kind of find myself. That wasn't uh, how things worked out, though. So I applied for a bunch of schools, got into poly. Uh, went there, and it got to the point where I was in school for my father. I wasn't there for myself. So I got to a point where I took time off. And then I had an, an aunt who was a nursing administrator for Montefiore Medical Center on Rikers Island. And one day she came home to the house, and she put an application for a summer job in front of me. So here, fill this out. Filled it out. Next thing you know, I had a summer job working at a clinic on Rikers Island. Uh, that was back in, like, the summer of 86. Wow. And what I would do, I would actually go back every year. Because uh, 86 was actually the year I was, should have graduated, but I was a little bit, like, behind in my, um, in my credits. So I would go back every year, though, and then it got to the point where it's like I just didn't want to be in school anymore, so I took a break. I started working full-time on Rikers. I was working there as a medical records clerk. Uh, that's when AIDS at first hit the forefront, and oh, they wow. opened up Dorm 18E, which was actually a nationally recognized uh, model because inmates had sued the city because the care they were receiving in what was then called Rikers Island Hospital was deemed to be substandard. And so Montefiore got the contract to actually provide health care services, and it was a very different model. So when I went back to work on Rikers full-time, I was actually working with a gentleman who became my mentor, Gene Gillito. And I remember I was in his clinic for one day, and he calls me at the end of the day, and he goes, hey, I need a favor from you. And what's the favor? Um, you know, there's a young lady who they put in the new dormitory setting where they have the AIDS patients, uh, and she's not comfortable working there. And, you know, we need you to go over there and cover until we figure out what we're going to do. 
So I went over there. The deputy director of operations was basically this number two administrative person for the program, comes over, gives me a primer. And it didn't take me long to realize as 21 years old that, hey, I'm pretty much going to be my own boss here because he's telling me he wants me to be his eyes and ears. Mm. So this was mine to kind of like either make or break. And because I'd worked in various capacities leading up to that, I was able to get a lot of things done that otherwise couldn't have gotten done just because I was Amy's nephew and people liked me. Wait, you were doing administrative work or you were so doing this, providing I was doing, care? No, no, this was medical. Okay. I was a medical records clerk. Oh, okay, okay. Right, so I basically was supporting the clinical team in okay. that regard. But the difference was in the dormitory setting, you were actually working within the confines of the inmates' housing area. Right. So you had to traverse these guys to get to your workstation versus right. in the clinic. Right. When the clinic is removed from the housing area, these guys come to the doctor to be seen and go back home, basically. Right. So uh, the only way they so had So it was just a question of setting that was Exactly. Yeah. But again, I think setting plus everything, again, and this is where I think having a nurse and having clinicians in your family and also having um, the type of dialogue we had at Bronx Science, I wasn't ignorant to AIDS. I knew I wasn't going to catch it right. by having guys sneeze on me or shake my hand or right. things like that. So I didn't go in there with like this level of fear that I think the person who I replaced had. Yeah. Um, and that actually got like a lot of notoriety and it actually put me uh, in a position to be known by like the leadership of the entire Rikers program, including Steve Safier, who's the current president of Monitor Medical Center, who just announced that he's going to be stepping down. Uh, as he retires, but I've known Steve now for over 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's through, like, taking advantage of those types of opportunities that kind of, like, just put me in a position to be recognized. So to condense this a bit. <laughs> no, that's a, a really interesting yeah. story, though. It's huh? a lot. Yeah. Uh, so Montefiore in the City, back around 1993, has a rift in terms of, like, the contract. And depending on which story you want to believe, either Montefiore walked away or the city fired them. Long story short, it's in a lot of people looking for new jobs, present company included. I actually applied for a job for a program called the Children's Health Fund, uh, New York Children's Health Project, which is a program that provides health care to homeless children and their families using a mobile medical unit clinical model. So basically a doctor's office on wheels that would drive around to different shelters throughout the city. Uh, I got that job actually applying through the New York Times when people used to actually apply for jobs uh-huh. by writing letters and actually sending out paper. And that actually kind of like opened up my foray into really kind of like elevating myself as a you know leader in the healthcare administrative world. Uh, over time, I got a little bit stale, and I saw like people I'd mentored were leapfrogging me, getting better titles, making more money. And I thought maybe I was doing something wrong, and I actually went to Steve and I said, you know, I want to thank you for everything you've done, but I think I've hit my wall here. At the time, he had a community development program. Uh, which is called the Marshall Preservation Corporation, which is a community development corp that Montefiore founded to help basically stave off some of the negative aspects of what you saw happening when the South Bronx was burning. Mm-hmm. So they did that because they wanted to try and make sure these like trends didn't like really adversely impact the hospital or the surrounding neighborhood because, of course, that could be totally catastrophic. So they started that to basically uh, identify properties that were at risk, especially around Montefiore facilities, turn them into affordable housing and create affordable units of housing for people living in the community. Huh. That actually grew to, from providing housing to also doing community economic development. They started the Norwood News, which you may be familiar with, which is like hyper-local paper that started yeah. as a newsletter mm-hmm. up there. Uh, and so these were the programs, actually, that Steve said, I think they can use you over there. And I became the deputy director of operations for the Marshall Preservation Corporation, which also included being the executive director of the Jerome Gunhill Business Improvement District. Oh. And that's how I made my first foray into community and economic development. So I, the, 
So they were basically like, all right, in order to preserve our institution, we have to go out into the community, you know, control it, buy up the housing, you know, invest money into it. So we have the state. We're going to proactively look for at-risk properties right. that we know if these properties go down, it will be catastrophic, not just to our institution, but to, but to this entire neighborhood. Right. And so it was a proactive move to really kind of like shield neighborhoods in and around Montefiore from Did very other adverse. hospitals do this in New York? Uh, this is not a common model. No. And I don't think there's another hospital that's actually done it to the level that Montefiore has. And I'm not even sure if there's another institution like Montefiore that has like a community development arm right. that they're directly affiliated with. Hmm. It's really interesting. I mean, it's fascinating yeah. stuff. So I just want to fast, because I do find, now that I get my last thing, you know, we did a series on the third-party transfer program. Yep. And it's really interesting. Great reporting. That, yeah, thank you. But back then, it seemed like in, in back in the day when they are doing H, HDFCs and, and they were, like, giving apartments away, and now fast forward with gentrification, they're kind of using this program that at one time might have helped people. They're doing it to take property now. And yeah. it's just um, so I think that's it. And, and also kind of just to round yeah. out. So actually, I was recruited for Montefiore to actually apply for the Bedside Gateway bid job. Uh, mm-hmm. Rob Walsh, the former uh, commissioner for Department of oh, Social Business Services uh-huh. under the Bloomberg administration, just asked me to throw my hat into the ring. And the rest, they say, is history. But getting back to the third party transfer program, I think that the intent of the program uh, initially is very good intent. And I think it was kind of like similar to Montefiore to really try and take properties that were probably not going to be doing well and be adverse, you know, um, create adverse environments for certain neighborhoods and to prevent that from happening and also creating like affordable housing situations. Right. Somewhere along the lines, which you guys have documented like very thoroughly um, and very well, the program started like becoming uh, an abuser of certain people who in some cases I think it even paid off their homes. from some Yeah, of a lot of them did. <laughs> so it's like you have a pristine brownstone in central Brooklyn in a community where, you know, when I was a kid growing up, my mother got her hair done on Fulton Street. People didn't want to go over there. Right. And now all of a sudden because of like the close proximity of great transportation, the great housing stock, all of a sudden now it's like this neighborhood's in play. What I don't understand is how do they end up even like single family housing getting onto that list because the original idea was that it was multifamily housing, right? If you had a if you had a nineteen unit building and they were gonna foreclose, that meant that everyone had to they'd have to vacate the entire building, all those people's lives would be disrupted. And so they said, Hey, look, if we can transfer this to a nonprofit who will manage it, people can stay, you know, we can be, we can manage the building and, you know, that makes sense. But taking one person's family. Well, you know, part of what they did, what's interesting, is they started uh, the HDFC, which is Housing Development Co-ops, right? Mm-hmm. And back in the day, they gave people, said, hey, if you take care of the building, we're going to give you the co-op for, you know, 2500 You got equity whatever, right? Now, 20 or 30 years later, these buildings are worth a lot of money. They're in a place, and all of a sudden, HPD's going, you know what? You haven't been taking care of your building. They were supposed to help them take care of the building. They were supposed to oversee it as an agency, but somehow they didn't. And now they're saying, you got to move out. We're going to give it to a nonprofit. We're going to fix it up. And then we're going to give the nonprofit a 0% loan. And when you come back, you can be there again. But you're going to be on the hook for a million dollars in renovation right. fees. You know, it, it, you know, it, 
I think just it was taken advantage, you know. It, yeah, it's it, somewhere along the lines. Feeding the beast. Yeah, right? it just went awry. Yeah. You know, and it went awry under people, like, looking directly at it. And, you know, I, you know, I really got to commend you guys for really sounding the alarm bells on this because I think without reporting, even though, you know, there's been some adversity already, I think people would be in a much worse shape right now and the level of awareness wouldn't even be there. It's, uh, it's amazing, Steve. I mean, Steve, this is Steve's story, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, when that Carnegie just had the hearing two days ago, yeah, neither the Times nor the Post nor the news covered it. I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> yeah, it didn't I mean, get... Because I, I was looking at it. I was like, I mean, Curb New York talk, picked it up. Right. Uh, Kelly obviously covered it because you and She's her worked Brooklyn on the story. Now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I, I didn't see any report of it. I, and I specifically looked for it, and it was compl- and like they were doing like hearings. Uh, I don't know, ridiculous. You know, Daily News had some ridiculous hearing on like uh, I, I, I mean, they were me- they were mentioning city council stuff, but I couldn't believe it. Well, that's the state of the media, but I do want to move it. You are a Queens kid now, yep. right? I want to go into this Caban thing. I know that you have some very <laughs> strong opinions about the progressive movement and this Caban cats race, and I would love to hear your your take on that, Mike. Yeah, so I, I think that we're seeing a really uh, significant shift in uh, politics and the landscape and the political environment across all of New York City, especially in certain neighborhoods. And there are a variety of opinions as to why we're seeing this. Uh, I think everyone, you know, looks at the watershed moment as AOC's victory over Joe Crowley uh, over in the uh, 14th Congressional District. And, you know, it really boils down to, I think, one, changing demographics. And also you've got like this national movement where you have candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who are like really promoting like these more socialist messages that are resonating with a lot of young people who I think in many cases, the ones I've talked to and I've had people like that on my staff, feel that basically that they're owed something or that something wasn't done for them and that you know they're living in a situation where they can't afford to buy a home, they can't buy a car. Uh, and a lot of things kind of like start to look at you know, who can we blame. And I think you're seeing that energy being harnessed in some cases based on what I understand from people who may have like larger agendas. you know. And I think mm-hmm. you saw that play out directly in the Queens DA race. You know, I was actually at the recount. Uh, there was a gentleman on uh, Monday who was there. He walked in, and I was standing next to him, and I heard him say he came from North Carolina for the recount. He came from North Carolina? North Carolina. <laughs> Why? And, um, so, that, so that was my question. So, But, you know, I didn't want to be too presumptuous because I know that, you know, Caban's had support from California. you got people writing, right. like, large checks from California. Um, you know, and you've got, like, volunteers, like, fanning out from, like, all parts of New York City, all parts of the country, literally, you've got Bernie uh, Sanders sending out email blasts. Hey, we need volunteers. You know, she's got 165 volunteer attorneys on her team. And there's a big deal being made by some other reporters uh, about, like, you know, who's being paid versus who's volunteering and so forth and so on. But later on, you know, I'm doing a, what they call spotting where I'm looking over someone's shoulder for irregularities on right. potential ballots. And a gentleman comes up and he stands next to me. And I say, oh, hi, Michael Lambert said, um, did I overhear you say you came here from North Carolina? And he said, yeah, that's correct. And I said, um, well, I said, wow. I said, just for the recount? He goes, yeah. I said, that sounds very cause-driven. He said, uh, what do you mean? And it was kind of funny because I was actually, you know, my sister actually has worked in three White House administrations. I'm wearing my Obama um, White House, like, uh, polo shirt with the 44 <laughs> on the sleeve. And he looks over and he goes, um, and who are you with again? I said, no, I'm just a volunteer. I'm only here supporting uh, Melinda Katz. And he says, well, I'm here because I hate machines. 
And I'm like, well, the thing is this, though. A Luddite? Say again? (laughs) A political Luddite? Basically. So I'm like, um, well, the thing is this, though. It's like, you know, I live here. And I live in the area that's going to be most impacted by her decarceral policies if she gets elected. I said, but you're coming from North Carolina. It's like, you're going to go home to North Carolina. I'm still going to have to be here and live. It's like... Why would we do that? Well, the, you know, the system's been broken for 40 years. It's been tilted to the wrong side what? for 40 years. <laughs> and I said, well, honestly, I said, I don't know if you've been following what's going on in Philadelphia. I said, but, right. you know, yeah, exactly. Tiffany Caban idolizes Larry Krasner. And, and that's a complete mess down there. But people try to say, oh, no, that's not because of Krasner. That's a heck of a coincidence <laughs> that all of a sudden, like, the shootings are spiking. Like, a few, about maybe a month ago, they had, uh, like, what, 19 shootings with 28 people shot in one weekend in southwest Philly. You know, you've had where he actually, I think, on day three, relieved some 31 district attorneys of their jobs, including people who right. are prepping cases with the family members of crime victims on a Friday, and he dismissed them before a case that was starting the next Monday. And you expect that that's going to be like responsible reform? Right. No, that's not. That's You're trying to now make a statement about the overall arching criminal justice system. Well, and, and, and if Krasner can't, and Krasner has 30 years of experience, you know, managing, uh, you know, public defending and managing, and, and, and if he can't do it, if it's, and regardless of whether it's his fault or whatever, it is, it's a complete mess. The cops are now putting up billboards saying, you know, get rid of Krasner. The, the murder rate is spiked. Uh, if he can't do it, why, why can someone who's, who has been trying cases for two years think that she can do it? That's the crazy thing. And I, I agree with you. You know, and if you look at most of her policy, like, I agree with, like, 80% of what she wants to do. Like, I, you know, like, most of it's really, it is No, there's, there's some medical middle yeah. ground here. Yeah, but it's, she's not qualified. And that's, like, the, that's just the, for me, like, the millennial thing. It's just, like, you don't have the experience. And just because you care about something doesn't mean that you're going to do a good job because it's extremely hard to manage a department of 600 people. But I think that if you've kind of been sold on the fact that, oh, you can do anything. I know. It's like you're not going to think about that until the reality actually strikes right. you. You know, yeah. and I think again, that's a mindset. I, I mean, one of my sons is thirty-two; the other one's going to be twenty-one. So I live with this in my household every day, and we have these conversations. Yeah. And I, I see, you know, like, okay, great, you may be capable and qualified and so forth, but there's a price that experience is there for a reason. Yes, you know what I mean. It's like it's to help you basically avoid certain pitfalls. I think the the most scary part about Caban considering Krasner an idol, is that she feels he has not gone far left enough, I've read. And when <laughs> wow. I read that, I'm like, well, if what's going well, on there is not bad enough, what, what are you trying to bring here? But it's true because they're realizing, they're, they're hitting the, the reality. So, like, I've, re- I've read stories that, you know, Krasner's uh, DAs are like, actually, you know, like, oh, we're going to get rid of bail. And then, the, you know, on, when it comes down to, like, whether you're going to ask, they're, they're continuing to ask for bail for a lot of these, uh, uh, their, their uh, cases because they're realizing... This person can't be in society. Exactly. And I think that, you know. They're realizing, oh, wait, maybe our ideology actually when you put it into play is not. It's not practical. Yeah, it's not practical. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that, that, that word ideology, and I think that everything, not only ideology, but I think even like the word progressive. It's like words have really like lost like any concrete meaning. Right. You know, and you got people who, oh, now on Twitter after certain things play out, I'm seeing progressives fighting with each other. Oh, the progressives that have college degrees are not treating me like an equal. So they've got like this infighting even within their own groups. That's standard on the left. That is completely standard where everyone just sort of like 
But I think it's it's yeah. even more amplified, especially in the wake of a potential loss. Right. And I've I've seen things that to me that have been a little bit strikingly scary because I see a lot of similarities apart from ideology and politics that mirror Trump supporters. Right. If you like coming folks with fact, like I've been blocked. You know, I don't know if you guys know Sean King. Sean King blocked yeah. me because he put out a call for a uh, birthday party in Canvas in St. Albans Park out in Southeast Queens. Uh-huh. And he put, oh, we got 4,000 RCPs. So I went out there that day to go take a look. There about 30 people out there. <laughs> At one point, before Caban arrived, you had more police, more park staff, and more of Sean King's private security than you had actual attendees for the rally. Right. And that was actually like maybe, what, 345? The rally was supposed to start at 3. Oh, we're going to get started in about 15 minutes. Before. So they got, I think it got about like three dozen people. So I just started like sharing that everywhere I could, and you know, it was being amplified. And one day someone said, oh, yeah, Sean King is spreading lies about like ballots being thrown out. So I went on Twitter, oh, what's Sean King saying? You've been blocked from doing Sean yeah. King's tweets. So it was like, it's like once you hit people with facts, right. it's no, almost like they can't respond. No, there is a scariness to, like, for example, Kelly, right, Steve, when she went to cover the Sanders rally in Brooklyn College, she was like, hey, there's no minorities here. It's all like Bernie bros from the suburbs. And then she got inundated with these, like, there's this insane um, uh, dogmatic approach by, by especially Sanders and the very, that sort of left core that, that, that is very scary. Because it's like, really? Do you really think that Bernie Sanders is the second coming? I think he's a good guy, and I think he's got, you know, I think he did a lot of great things to bring conversations, uh, start conversations that we haven't been having in this country. But he's not Jesus Christ. I mean, it's crazy. You know, I, I just read this thing uh, in the Wall Street Journal with Peggy Noonan, who I really like her as a commentator. <clears throat> and she, she wasn't comparing uh, what's happened to the fr- French Revolution. But she did put up some parallels, and one of the parallels is that they literally took the language, and they're doing it here, and they're like, even like non-gender, they're, they're switching language where now you need to use certain kind of language. It's grammatically incorrect. If, if somebody says, uh, you know, he told you to go over there, a lot of the progressives say you can't say he and you can't, you can't say she. You can't be presumptive. Yeah. So you have to say they, which is actually grammatically, grammatically incorrect. That there, you know, when you know when any group of people, either to the left or to the right, when they start switching around language speak, that's that's kind of a slippery slope that can go to kind of a totalitarianism. I mean, it, you well, know. I mean, the big magazine is called Jacobin. You know, like the, it's a, you know what I'm talking. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's it's called Jack, Jacobin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those were, you know, the the most extreme the revolution. of the, Revo- the French Revolution. <laughs> like that, like the, you know, the academic Marxist website magazine is called Jacobin. Oh, and that came from the French Revolution. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The the article was saying that while you know Britain at the time also rebelled against their monarchy, but they did it in such a way where they just didn't start guillotining everybody. Yeah. yeah. So. I think Tom makes a very valid point because I've, you know, I've gotten into numerous debates during the course of this election about like the lack of diversity in Caban's campaign. And remember, I worked on Rikers for almost eight years. Right. I've literally talked to probably thousands of inmates during my time working there. Some of these folks, I would see them and they're like, oh, Howie, what are you doing here? Oh, I got caught up in that crack stuff. So these were not like strangers. Some of these people, I knew them. Right. They were my family. They were my neighbors. They were my friends. Some of them will tell you. 
I don't need to be on the street because if you put me back on the street, I'm going to be a harm to you. Right. That's my, they would tell you that's my job. And while I agree to your point that, you know, I come from Southeast Queens, 105th Precinct, that had some, I think, 16-plus hundred low-level marijuana offenses for a middle-class black neighborhood. Right. Cool. Second to that was Brownsville, like 300-something. Yeah, and it seems like that may be a little bit systemic and, like, maybe there's something wrong there. Absolutely. It just doesn't make sense. And so does it benefit society to lock up people because they got caught a little bit of weed on them? Probably not. I don't use – I'm Jamaican, so, you know, <laughs> But my thing is, like, you know, okay – Let's look at, like, people who are doing really harm, real harm. Right. You know, I read, like, one story out of Philly again where a guy robbed the Odega with an AK-47. They pled him back to the street. <laughs> and I was like, are you waiting for him to actually pull the trigger what the next time? It, That's a scary thought when you think yeah. about that kind of stuff. Well, it, it goes back to, I mean, it's funny. They attack incrementalism. This is this horrible thing. It's like, we need a revolution. Yeah, it has, everything has to happen now. Yeah. And, and the change has to be radical. Yeah. It's like. You know, let's, like, burn the house down to kill the fly that's in the kitchen. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, it, it makes sense if, if, if you want to grab power. The yes. Only, the only way it makes sense is if you want – if the only – your real objective is not the actual change. It's the actual power. Correct. And so I they agree, just 100%. really show their cards to say, no, we need to do it now. We have to do everything and now. And, no, you're not doing – you have the right ideas, but, like, you're not doing it fast enough. And it's like, well, there's a reason. Like, for example, with um, the Green New Deal, Right. I agree with, again, 80 to 90% of what's in the Green New Deal. But putting that out and saying that we have to link climate change with a federal jobs guarantee is, is absurd because it doesn't have anything to do with each other. And I think we need a stronger social safety net, but you need to experiment. Like when the Finns and the Danes and the Dutch, who all are way more liberal than we are, are like experimenting with universal income and figuring out what to do and like testing all these pilots. And we're like, no, we got to do this right now. We have to do a whole nationwide federal. I mean, it's absurd. So you have to do it incrementally if you really actually want to enact those changes. And that's really what you want to do. But I think the piggyback on that, I don't know if you saw the article with Saikot Chakrabarty in the Washington Post where he actually said he pretty much admitted the Green New Deal wasn't about like, you know, the greening of America. It was more about like pushing this change agenda. Right. Across the country. That's, that's AOC's chief of exactly. staff. Exactly. And that, yeah. to your point, speaks to nothing more than a power grab. Camouflage is something else. Right. And again, going back to the part about the diversity, again, during the volunteer period, minimal black and brown people. There. Right. Minimal people from New York. If you And again, this stuff is not like I'm making this up. All you got to do is go to a Caban page on right. Twitter. Right. Look at the pictures from her rallies. Look at the photos from her fundraisers. Look at who's canvassing for her. You know? When I have to get into a debate... With someone of Indian descent, that, that he's the black and brown person in the photo. <laughs> but, you're, but you're talking about folks who you say you're trying to help who are incarcerated on Rikers. Have you ever been to Rikers? Right. Because, again, the majority of people in Rikers are blacks and Puerto Ricans and Latinos. You right. know, it's like the, what I call like urban blacks and Latinos, right. the folks who grew up here, right. you know, who are not like newly transplanted here. Yeah. And when you, you don't see that represented in your, on your team, in your ranks, but these are people you're like, yes, we're going to help them. Well, you know, there, there was a – and this is where I wanted to kind of steer this conversation is the, the other thing I read is uh, – and I read in the Times today that the statistics are showing that the white millennials are the most race conscious now. And, you know, and they're very woke. And a lot of the progressive pushback is actually coming from the black community. 
You know, I mean, like Greg Meeks. You know, I spoke, I, you know, Bed Stuy. I speak with Rob Carnegie yep. and Henry Butler. And a lot of them are, whoa, you know. We, you know, we've had, you know, we fought for civil rights. We have a legacy. We, you know, we've, you know, we've worked within the system. A lot of them are, I'm not going to say they're conservative, but they're family people. And they believe in working hard and lifting yourself, you know, kind of American ideals. So why I want to bring this is. I'm getting a feeling that AOC, who was saying, we're going to challenge all these middle-of-the-roaders, I'm beginning to think that Greg Meeks is putting a line in the sand. And I'm thinking he's going to, you know, particularly— Yeah, so, so, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Greg Meeks. He's my congress member, um, and I've gotten to know him better through this process. And I think that when you talk about, like, these power dynamics, and everyone is quick to throw it again, another word that has, like, no real concrete definition, depending on who is using it, is machine. And when I, right. you know, when I like propose, like, well, you keep calling the Queens County thing a machine, a machine basically implies that, like, basically the people are, like, out there, like, pulling the strings on behalf of the collective. But isn't that what you're doing? So how are you not a machine? <laughs> and it's funny because the same guy from North Carolina, at one point when he said to me, I'm here because I hate machines. And I right. said, well, a machine is. And he goes, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. He knew exactly what he was going to say. Right. A machine by any other name is still a machine. Right. Like, if you're, I mean, if, if. Everyone's there because Sanders said go and do that. Exactly. Yeah. That's a machine. Yeah. Who, who can marshal resources right. from a thousand miles away by sending one email? Can you do that? No. No, I can't do that. So do you think that, that, you know, that there is a clash of – you think that there's going to be or there's already started a clash of – I think that – I mean maybe I'm just hopefully thinking that the progressives are kind of – they wanted a fight. They're going to get one now. Uh, I would venture to think, and I can't speak obviously for the Congress mm-hmm. member, but what I'm seeing, and I think he is, again, being a reasonable, rational individual. He had a, actually had a meeting, I believe it was like last week, uh, Thursday, I can't remember exactly what day, where he met with a lot of like the progressive members of Queens County Committee to really talk about this thing. So it's not like he's coming here and saying, no, you guys are wrong. I'm not going to listen to you and like close the door. He's making a concerted effort to say, okay, let me hear what your issues are. Let's see how we can work out uh, all the differences and how we can actually work for effectual change. It's going to benefit everyone, not just me, not just you, but everyone, you know, who lives in this borough. Right. And I think that's the type of responsible reform that people, I would hope, would be looking for. Yeah, when you say progressive, too, like, do you know how Jumaane was like, he wanted to, he created a new, last week, Jumaane had a new word for uh, his type of progressivism, because he said that, well, if Andrew Cuomo calls himself a progressive, then I want to be something else. And I think what I I really don't want is for the democratic socialists to label themselves the true progressives, when actually uh, most of the people here, like, for example, just in the Queen's DA race, we're advocating extremely progressive policies. And I think the difference is, you know, like I, for example, I would call myself a social democrat, meaning, uh, you know, believing in market capitalism with a very strong social safety net. And uh, the difference between that and the democratic socialist, I don't, I don't understand except the idea that you actually really want to really push the country into some sort of like very socialist or Marxist state, which I think a lot of people do. And I think what you were talking about in terms of, you know, the difference between white and black support for democratic socialism, you really have to have very little real-world experience to, like, get into the world of democratic socialism. You really have to just be in a world of ideas and read, you know, philosophy and and not really actually participate in the world. Because once you start participating in the world, 
then those ideas and those notions get tempered. Exactly. And so... Well, what I'm wondering is if, it, you know, like Greg Meeks, it's the same thing with Sadio. He tries to talk to progressives. But, you know, when all the talk is said and done, if they're going to try to take out the county committee, the existing county committee in, in Jamaica, Queens, you know, I, I don't expect or try to take out Greg Meeks himself and some of the other people. I don't expect him like he's talking to him, but I, I see a coming clash. No, I, I think that especially with this district attorney's race has been a real wake up call for a lot of folks. And I'm not talking about the progressives. I'm talking about like the folks who live in southeast Queens who are like having like one of those Eddie Murphy moments. Like, oh, wow. You know, this was like a lot closer than I thought it was going to be. And you look at the field, and it's like, honestly, if this were a contest, heads up, I would venture to guess versus Melinda versus Caban, Lasak versus Caban, um, Lanceman versus Caban. Caban loses soundly. But now you have, like, where they're playing the party against each other. And that really kind of fed into this now. But I think you could see, like, there are a lot of folks that their wins are out of their sales. funny. I remember, like, when the last vote was counted uh, yesterday at the recount, and Parides, uh, the attorney, was over there, and Taekwana Henderson, who's a political consultant, oh, I know Taekwana, Queens, yeah. she counted. You know, she was the one who was doing the tally, and the last one came for cats, and we all burst out into applause. And Parides goes, "Oh, very gracious." And I thought about this after the fact. What I should have said was, "Yeah, as gracious as Caban was on election night." It's like it's almost like everyone is just trying to like hold on to their ideology on the left side, right? And they're not being practical. Again, you're talking about you want to basically help all these folks who are incarcerated, but you've never come to our neighborhood. The one time I saw you in our neighborhood, you were shing, you know, sinking jump shots and saying before you took it down, oh, that's going to be good for about four votes. So that's what you see my neighborhood is now. We're uh, votes. If you, got, if you can shoot a hot J, right. we're going to vote for you. That's, right. No. Right. You know, that shows you have a total lack of understanding of like how a lot of us even came to be in this neighborhood yeah. and the struggles that we actually had to basically get through to get to this neighborhood. You know, so there's a lot of like... To your point, ideology that's coming from, like, you know, hypotheses and theories, not from practical applications. No. You know, and that's why when people keep coming and they tell me, oh, well, what's your perspective? Where'd you hear this from the inmates? Because I talk to them. Um, let's move on. To some, <laughs> oh, oh, do you think Caban's going to win with the recount in Cats? There's like 110 ballots and there are affidavits still. So there is an election law process that was in place before these candidates even decide to run for office. Right. And basically, this is a game. Those are the rules. And based on what I've seen and heard, I don't think that she had I think she has what I will call a Hail Mary pass long shot pathway to victory, which based on what I've seen in my personal observation of the recounts is not going to hold through. I mean, I have to ask myself, right, if you went to the trouble of filling out an affidavit ballot envelope, why would you leave out the party affiliation of all the things you're going to leave out? That seems quite odd to me. So basically what you're saying is, I mean, and what I've read very briefly is that they're like, well, we should have everyone who, you know, every every vote vote should count, but then there's rules. And so the judge would have to basically ignore all the rules that are set in place and say, you know what, every vote's going to count no matter what you, no matter what you did, no matter how you filled this out, then we're going to. We're going to accept it. And I think even yesterday during uh, the Caban press conference, Jerry Goldfeder spoke to that. And he knows he he calls certain things like he called not filling in your party affiliation a hyper-technical disqualification. No, that's a rule. Right. You're supposed to put your party affiliation on there. 
and you didn't. And there have been people who were not registered Democrats who did things like that, and that's why some of those ballots were invalidated. Right. Right. Yeah, a lot of them were other, you know, working and that families. Happens, that, party. And that happens in every single election. Every single election. It's just that in right. this particular case, it's so close, then they— Do you think Caban's going to, you know, the, the progressive movement's going to take it lying down? Are they going to be good losers? I mean— that's, that's an interesting way to frame that. I don't think you will have seen the end of the progressive movement, especially out in Western Queens. I think that's a growing movement right now. Uh, based on what I'm seeing, their energy is not as high as it was, say, on June 25th. There has been a fair amount of like wind, I think, taken out of the sales. But there it, was only a 10 percent vote. The other thing is, I mean, the total Queens vote was like 10 percent turnout. Yeah, I mean, voting in New York City has been, you know, not the most popular thing for a lot of people, obviously, going back a number of election cycles. And I think that, you know, obviously if 90 percent of the people or 89 percent of the people stay home, that in itself says a lot. Right. Well, you it's know? also June, too. It's not a general It's June. Election. It's the first year this yeah, has actually happened. They just voted for this one, new primary right. date in June. So, But even if you look at, like, the most recent citywide elections, it's still around, like, 11 percent of the registered who are voting across the board. It, so it's very similar. It's interesting for Kings and Queens County politics that we do in New York County politics. Everybody's like, well, you know, what's your view? It's like, all we need is the voters. We, we don't need, we're, we're, you know, Kings County politics. We don't need every mom and pop. If, if we can get half of the people that vote regularly, that's a huge audience Correct. Know, for, for what we have. So speaking of the mayor's race, moving into it, right? We, we're going into 2021. I know we're racing through some stuff, Mike. <laughs> what, what do you what do you what do you sing if you had a crystal ball? So right now, uh, I think that again, and people like to handicap this stuff with me uh, a bit, and I'm always of the philosophy that it's a little bit too early to really handicap. But based on my knowledge, you know, I know some of these candidates directly. I've at one point in my life, I think I've spoken to every single committed candidate or everyone who's rumored to be a candidate right now uh, in both professional capacities as well as even social capacities. You know, um, and I think that you're looking again at candidates who are now running for a contest in a very different landscape than it was in the last contest. And I think that the advent of AOC and now with this, uh, the advent of the galvanization of like folks around Tiffany Caban, it, it's a game changer. I think you can't deny that fact. That is, in fact, a game changer. When you look at the records of folks, I think that actually is like a starting point. So when I was the, the co-chair of the Bid Association, we worked with Corey Johnson on a variety of policies. One in particular was like the vending legislation. You know, when the, Melissa Marfa Verito was trying to basically advance opening up the permit structure for street vendors across the city. And there were a lot of aspects of that that actually had nothing to do really with vending, but just with public safety. You know, either from health safety. I mean, you go to Jackson Heights right now, and you'll right. probably find someone under the seven train with a shopping cart with like a overturned garbage can, cooking food on it, and then selling that to people literally while there are pigeons like literally overhead. And I'm not making this stuff up, and I'm not trying to disparage a community, but these are things I've seen either with my own eyes or in photos. Right, and then and then people who have stores they're under direct scrutiny from the. Department of Health, Correct. and like they have to spend all this money and you're paying taxes, yeah. and you're you know you're subject right. to inspections. So right. it's like that playing field's not that level. Right. But I say all that to say that I watched how Corey actually approached at the time he was the chair of the health committee, and how he approached basically working on that legislation, even up to the point where he was uh, running for speaker. And I saw Corey as someone who a lot of people say, oh, you know, Corey's going to run out of steam. You know, he's coming out the gates too fast, too hard, and this and the third. 
And he became like a horse that almost like won a race end to end. But I start to see Corey in a different light that way because I saw him as someone who could actually get certain things done, who could actually build various broad coalitions of people and galvanize support. So I saw him as a doer, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think Eric uh, initially. Eric Adams. Eric Adams. Yeah. I think Eric, you know, had like some stumbles in the beginning when he took over from Marty Markowitz. Uh, you know, I remember he used to have this line that, he, you know, he'd come out here with his own shoes. Uh, and I think that people didn't really, that didn't really resonate with a lot of people. And he had some small things that people were like judging him for. Like, you know, I think that the Wingate concert series was one thing. Right. But I think Eric, you know, and my grapevine chatter now has really been saying a lot of good things about Eric. A lot of people on Brooklyn have been asking me my thoughts and opinions on Eric. And I think Eric has really like turned a curve and especially if you look at his fundraising, if you look at like his approach to this, I think he's really presenting himself as a force to be reckoned with. Um, and I think that his his star is rising from what I can tell, you know, from my grapevine. Uh, Ruben Diaz Jr., you know, when I was actually out in, uh, in, in the Bronx working there, I worked with some of Ruben's staff on things like what was going to happen with the Kingsbridge Armory and... You know, I think Ruben is very well beloved by most of the Bronx constituents. But again, if you look at the voting numbers, it's like the numbers make it a much more longer shot for someone who's coming from the Bronx to cross that threshold um, than it would be. And now I think the everything you have to look at again is like this insurgence of progressive mindsets and, you know, are you a progressive candidate? And this is going to factor into a lot of things. I think also you look at like the new campaign financing structure. And how you've got now eight to one. an eight-to-one match. But, you know, and again, that's caused some contention. You know, I, you know, I worked for Scott uh, Stringer for a couple of years there. Very interesting experience. I think that, you know, that what happened there is that I think we just kind of like diverged. We started in one place. Scott recruited me to be the co-chair of his Red Tape Commission, which actually looked at how to improve the landscape of um, small, the small business community along in New York City. And over time, I think that, was only a priority. I would have people like Tom Gresh, the president of the Queen's Chamber of Commerce, who come and say, hey, we need to do like a red tape commission to follow up. And I would mention it to Scott. Scott's like, oh, no, we're not doing that. Or I would talk to bid directors who would say the same thing. And, you know, so there wasn't a palette for that. So somewhere along the line, that shifted. And now I know that recently, you know, there was an article that described Scott's like the 59-year-old millennial and being woke <laughs> AF. And Steve, I, think, I thought you were the 64-year-old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am, of course. But when, but when you see stuff like that now, and you see like the you know Scott's very strategic in what he does, and you know he's actually out there, uh, you know he's been a big fighter against the IDC. You know he endorsed a lot of these progressive candidates, um, and in this most recent DA's race, you know near the end of the race, he endorsed Tiffany Caban, uh, which I think speaks to, you know, where Scott thinks his pathway to victory is. Because Scott's been you know, elected official for a very long time. Um, Do you think that Scott and Corey Johnson each have a little bit of the same base that Manhattan they could take away from each other? I would say yes. I would say you're probably going to have some overlap between Corey's base and Scott's base. They're going to be like out there trying to decide, like, okay, it's like, you know, 
do you want to support the new younger? You know what? What I've seen just to throw in. You know, it, it start of mayoral races. Whoever the speaker is is always like a favorite. Everybody's going, "Wow, they really got it together." They're this, but it's kind of an inside baseball job. You know, it's kind of like they. The, of course, the city council people are all going to love them because they dole out the committee assignments and and the discretionary funds. So they, you know, they always get a lot of like inside political support. But I, I always wonder if being speaker translates citywide. So I think that, again, this landscape is not the same as I would say it was even two years ago when Corey was elected speaker. And I think that now we're in the advent of using social media and Twitter. And I think I've seen Corey in more parts of the city along with his colleagues in the city council, more so than any other speaker that I can recall. He does get out there. He, right? He's a hard worker. He's on Twitter morning, noon, But I got to tell you, Twitter, <laughs> I know. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it depends. I think that, you know, and I think it was an op-ed that came from Kings County mm-hmm. Politics about a week or so ago where it talked about the fact that, like, you know, okay, so everyone's tweeting, you know, and you may have 40,000 followers, but there's some eight-plus million people living in the city. Right, right. That was a good op-ed. But I think Martin, what happens— uh, is that through Twitter, Twitter becomes a vehicle for amplification. It becomes a vehicle for conversation. You know what I mean? So you're going to reach people organically, not just through the platform, but through the, hey, did you see this? Did you see that tweet? Right. And it kind of like builds a following that way. I think to be perfect, I think the people who probably tune in most to Twitter, especially if they're following politics and government, are people who have an interest in politics and government. Right. Reporters, other elected officials, you know, people who just want to keep in the know what's going on in their neighborhoods. But there's a level of application that also comes along with that beyond just your followers. And again, I think, you know, you look at the public advocate race and Omiki Constantine had like some 80 plus thousand followers. And I was like, well, if they're all in, in you know, Queens. You right. know, I just want to shift some that I was just thinking. If it holds up and Katz wins, there's going to be a special election for borough president. That's correct. And I mean, you're, you're a Queens guy. <laughs> Is there anybody from Southeast Queens? I heard Danique Miller might be looking at it. Or? So I have not heard of anyone from Southeast Queens formally declaring their candidacy. The folks who I know, as I understand it now, who have thrown their hats in that ring are Liz Crowley, Jimmy Van Bramer. Uh, I'm hearing about Costa Constantinides. Um, and I think those are the few that I've heard. Am I leaving anyone out? It's like who do you think's a favorite in that? At this point, again, too early to tell. I think that— But that's going to be a special. That's not going to be 2021. Yeah, that, true. That will, I think that's this year. That, that's correct. And, again, I think that from lessons learned in this current Queens DA race, it's going to be even more special because I don't think people are going to approach it, the next special, as business as usual. Right. And I think there are a lot of wild cards in the deck. It's like funny because, again, it's like, you know, a lot of people were like telling me when Kabam was up like 1,100 votes. I get phone calls. Oh, you know, give it up already. She's lost. The paper ballots always follow the election in a typical race. I'm like, this is not a typical race. You're not following me here. Because she tried to score a Buster Douglas knockout on election night. She wasn't trying <laughs> to get some recount victory weeks right. or months after the fact. She right. was trying to make her statement that night. So in that case, you're all hands on deck. If you're voting, I want your vote counted that night. If you're in town, I want you out there getting out the vote. Right. I don't want you telling me you're going on vacation, I'm going to mail in my ballot. And then when I heard the volume, I said the only wild cards in this deck that would play against Melinda were Lanceman, Lasak, and, um, and um, who am I forgetting here? Uh, Malik. Malik? Malik, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because those were yeah. the ones who were most likely to strip votes that would have gone to her. Right. 
You know what I mean? So I think that, again, you can't look at this stuff as typical. Who did Taekwondo? Was she with Malik? I thought she was with Malik. No. no. Uh, actually, Lupe Todd was with Malik. Oh, well, I thought Taekwondo and Lupe are like sisters. Oh, no, no. I mean, everyone yeah, Everyone yeah. gets along. I think that's the right, bottom line. Yeah. It's like, you know, again, the circles of folks who are actually in the space yeah, tend yeah, to be yeah. fairly tight. Right. And people have a lot of mutual respect for each other. Yeah. But Taekwondo was basically with cats. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Okay. All right. We're going to do our lightning round now, We're gonna, which is we talk about whatever we want. It is. Re- I really like this conversation, Mike. You're, you know a lot. You're an encyclopedia of knowledge, and I, I try. appreciate it. <laughs> so in, in the lightning round, I'm going to start. I wrote something that was very controversial this week, and I'm <laughs> getting beat up. And why I do it, it's just Steve Witt. It's flame on sometimes, you know. <laughs> but I think people that know me, and like my work, realize that some, that's the way I roll. You know, sometimes you gotta, you know, you gotta crack some eggs. In this case, I cracked the whole hen house eggs. I equated the bikers with uh, the Holocaust and Nazis and the, the bike crowd. The bicycle people are not, uh, it, those are two crowds that are kind of sensitive. I'm a Jewish man myself, and I'm, and I'm very pro Israel and I'm very pro my people. Um, and, but, and, and you're very anti-Holocaust? You know, yeah, I mean, That's I grew good. up in Skokie, Illinois, where there was a lot of concentration camp refugees where mm-hmm. I went to. I, but I'm, I'm of the opinion, I've also been to Israel, you get more Holocaust jokes in Israel than anywhere else. I mean, there, there is a thing. I'm th- going to take your word for that. All right. <laughs> no, that, that, you, that, you know, it's not, you, you have to be able to laugh too, right? And there's a lot of, like, stereotypical kind of sayings from Holocaust, you know, like, they came for this person, and I wasn't that person. And this. So here was the bike lane, and I had broken a story that in Clinton Hill, they were beginning to take residential parking, no parking, on a street, on a brownstone street. And I thought, well, you know, it started with uh, trucks, you know, trucks doing deliveries. They couldn't double park, right? But... I don't have a commercial license, so I didn't say anything, right? Then it's like congestion pricing. Wait, are you going to do the whole uh, shtick? And well, no. Well, what happened is I made, all right, I, made, I made something. I know I wadded into this, and I've gotten demands to take it off. And I've got, I mean, just tons of tweets. And this is what we witness, and we don't respect you, and we'll never believe you. And, you know, I considered taking it off. And then today I was reading about freedom of speech. You know, I do these quotes every day in the newsletter. And I'm thinking, well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to push back on this because it was satire. That's what satire is. And really good satire, it, it digs into people. That's what you're supposed to do. That, that's the purpose of satire. Well, also, I mean, there's the rule on the Internet, right? Like if a if a conversation like goes a certain amount of time, like the like it's the probability is that someone will be called a Nazi. So it's not like you know what I'm talking about. Like it's a, heard it's, that it's, one. it's a, it's like a it's an internet <laughs> meme. It's like it's some rule that basically if a conversation on the in- internet you know goes for a certain amount of time, that the probability of someone being called a Nazi increases. <laughs> so you're just fall like honestly like that. Your article just goes into that bucket of calling people Nazis, you know. But I didn't call them Nazis. What, no, what? I know, but like you but referencing the Holocaust, like it's right. not that uh, every, basically what I'm saying is everyone references the Nazis and, and when you reference Nazis, I mean, you don't reference it because of their uniforms. You reference I didn't mention Nazis did. or a Holocaust in this story. No. <sighs> but yes, I understand what you're saying though, Tom. But it's just like everyone reference everyone makes that comparison and unfairly. So it's I mean, obviously you're not saying that Right. 
removing cars and well, the 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 story, the idea, the story was if cars could talk. This is what they'd be saying, like, hey, the word in the parking garage, you know, instead of the word on the street, you know, is they're coming after us, you know. So that okay. that was the whole right. genesis of the story. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> but I, you know, now I'm in all kinds of hot water. They're going to come after my advertisers yeah, and this. I and think that. we're in an age of like, you know, people are sensitive to a lot of things right now. I mean, you mm-hmm. talked about it before with like the gender conformity. You know, I know that people actually have their preferred pronouns. And I guess, you know, even though it's satire, I think that, you know, some subjects for some people are, you know, just, they're harder. They're, you know, in many cases off limits because I think there's like a lot of pain that comes with that. And it's probably, you know, some people I think you may touch du- directly on some real pain, but I think some people also just like to stir a pot. You know, I haven't read the piece yet, so mm-hmm. I will after this. <laughs> um, I also think there are people, and this is kind of weird, but it's like if people who subscribe to like, okay, we can't offend, you can't offend anyone and you can't do anything. If you see someone else doing that, it's not necessarily I'm offended by what you said. I'm offended that you're breaking the rule and not following the general uh, demeanor of what I've decided to do. You know, like make sure that I don't offend anyone. And now look at you. You're saying this that that could possibly be offensive to someone. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. No, I agree. But I I think we're in a dangerous time if that happens. You know, when 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 we. All of a sudden, when freedom of speech, you know, like on college campuses and stuff, when you know, which is supposed to be intellectual freedom of ideas, and you banter back and forth, when when that goes, that's a very slippery slope for society. That's a very important right: is the right of freedom of speech and freedom of the press and freedom of thought. It's so you still sort of that. The Milo Yiannopoulos speech got canceled at <laughs> NYU. Okay. No, but no, no, but I, I think you know. It doesn't sound like people are, like, questioning your right to actually say what you said. I think people are just not happy with what you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I'm hearing in this conversation. That sounds accurate. Yeah. Um, which well, I guess happens from time to time with Stephen Witt. <laughs> yes. On, based on my interaction with Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's done is done. You have anything to say on uh, anything off the top of your head, Mike, Tom? Uh, I just think, you know, thank you guys for having me. You know, it's um, just stay tuned and like working out my next moves and see where that lands. You know, this political space has uh, been a lot of fun. You think it'll run for office? No, I, I don't think. People have been asking me that for the better part of the last 30 years. And I think that one thing I've learned now, especially having worked in government, you can probably effectuate more change being on the outside of government applying pressure than you can being on the inside. Uh, working at a very high level in city government, I learned how restrictive working in city government can be. You know, again, it's like, yeah, I'll go back to myself as an example. I had you know, my district leader, who's a good friend of mine, I've known her since, you know, like, we were grade schoolers. And she's like, Mike, you're a black guy who went to Bronx Science. What do you think about the specialized high school admission test? At the time, I was still working for Scott. And I was like, well, you know, I'm going to have to wait until I see what Scott's opinion is, and then I'll tell you <laughs> what I think. Because at my level, I couldn't just independently speak because, again, it could obviously be bad for me and for the principal, and that wasn't the job. Um, but again, I think that what I learned from that experience is basically when you have like advocates who know how to push the right part of the balloon, you can really make things move. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're seeing it now again with the DA's race, even in Caban's speech yesterday when she talks about this, not just being about the DA race, about being a movement and about, you know, getting people to shift their conversations left. And, you know, and obviously all these things are true, right. you know, but does that make them right? Does that make them good? I think time will have to bear that out. All right. Well, anything on you, Tom? Uh, 
No, I can't think of anything right now. All right, so let's say goodbye, give her a little Twitter and feeds and everything. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you have a Twitter handle? Do we people can follow uh, do you? I? At yes. Mazaik NYC. That's at M E Z I K E N Y C. All right, and you can follow us at Kings County Polls, uncorrect, at Uncorrect New York. Uh, Stephen underscore Wit S T P H E N W I uh, underscore W I T T and at Tom Rosati and we will see you next week.